This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. continue our fugitives i i felt like we needed to have because a lot of the people that end up being the most wanted i wanted to find some cases where maybe somebody wasn't necessarily uh worthy of being most wanted this guy's definitely been a fugitive um and i don't think that a lot of people understood him. Uh, this is certainly one of the saddest cases that I've ever come across. So I will uh, go ahead and, and warn people of that primarily because uh, the way that he gets into the system, which is very circular. Um, I don't feel like it's necessarily a, um, I don't think he got a fair shake. Uh, this guy's name is Mark DeFriest. He was born August 18th, 1960 in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. He was very close to his father growing up, um, and he was known to be a savant. And a savant is a condition where someone may have significant mental disabilities, but they could do something else amazing. And what Mark was known for was he could build and fix just about anything at the age of six his family recalled that he would disassemble and reassemble watches and small engines um he was constantly devising elaborate sort of science experiments um and he's even commented in a a documentary about him that he blew himself up a few times as he got older his mechanical knowledge was rapidly increasing and uh, becoming very astute, but his psychological well-being was getting worse. Now, his father and he had a uh, a mechanical connection, uh, according to filmmaker Gabriel London. And his father had served in World War II with the OSS. And the OSS was the Office of Strategic Services. It was the intelligence agency of the United States during World War II. 
Um, it had been formed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to coordinate uh, espionage activities, specifically behind uh, enemy lines. And what it's known as today uh, is the CIA. Uh, that's uh, the OSS is the, the predecessor to the CIA. Mark's dad, he taught Mark all of the things that you know he had learned during World War II, which was avoidance tactics, survival, and defense techniques that would be described as like guerrilla warfare. Now, when Mark was 18 years old, his dad died suddenly in 1979. In his uh, will, Mark's dad left him all of his tools. So all of the things that, you know, Mark had learned to use for his experiments and his, his building and his understanding of things. The very first time that Mark is arrested, it's because he went to his dad's house and collected all of the tools. His stepmother called the police. And when the police came for Mark, he panicked and he ran. He took a firearm from the house with him. Now, he never used it. He never pulled it out. He just had it with him. But for this alleged theft, because technically the tools had not gone through uh, the probate process with his dad's estate, Mark ends up sentenced to four years in prison from the time he's 18 to the time he's 23. He's in prison. So he's awaiting trial and then he's in prison. There were some questions, although not like real specific legal motions, about Mark's legal competence. He had always behaved erratically. Um, he was reported as being highly intelligent and lacking in social skills. And he really stood out in prison because of this. He had an outsider or a loner mentality. And he basically attempted to escape every facility that ever tried to keep him. He has been deemed uh, incompetent or mentally ill by now eight of nine psychiatrists who have examined Mark. Uh, the one psychiatrist who dissented or didn't agree with the idea uh, was Dr. Robert Berland. And he believed that Mark's behavior was intentional. Based on that assessment alone, uh, the court has allowed Mark to stand trial and to receive maximum sentences in cases. Berland based this on uh, a number of things. The, one of the biggest things uh, that he based it on was Mark's ability to assume false identities and to continue to attempt to escape. Now, decades later, uh, Berlin said that he was probably wrong. And the consensus is today that Mark is probably high on the autism uh, spectrum. He has an impairment of his ability to interact with others. And he's essentially not able to to fit in well to society. What has happened to him 
is basically that four-year prison term has turned into now 42 years behind bars. So uh, I found a number of different uh, articles and uh, informations about Mark. There's video information. There's lots of interviews about him. In July of 2016, People Magazine published an article by Jeff Truesdale that says, Florida's prison Houdini wins legal release from the state, but jail awaits elsewhere. Um, Here's what that uh, article says. After 36 years, remember this is in 2016, uh, most of them sent behind bars, the man whose seven successful prison escapes earned him the nickname of Florida's prison Houdini was granted parole by a state board on Thursday. But Mark DeFriest is far from free. Although the Florida Commission on Offender Review granted his parole effective July 26, 2016, DeFriest next must report to prison in California, where a four-year sentence awaits for infractions he committed while housed in that state's correctional system. Still, his attorney, John Middleton, tells People, My hat's off to the commission for recognizing and doing the right thing. He says that Mark is a longtime victim of a system that is not equipped to handle those like Mark who have mental illness and where his client's initial four-year sentence for a seemingly minor theft conviction led to nearly four decades in lockup. Citing medical confidentiality regarding inmates, a spokesman for the Florida Department of Corrections says that she could not address Mark's diagnosis or any possible treatment he has received. But Mark's efforts to break free, which have compounded the length of his time behind bars, have grabbed attention. In one instance, he says he poured LSD from the Florida State Hospital Infirmary into a staff coffee pod, thinking the workers' disorientation would clear the way for his exit. But security was alerted before he could try. Uh, This is according to the New York Times. In another, he memorized the zigzag pattern of a guard's master key and made a duplicate, uh, says his lawyer, which allowed him to break out of his cell, but not the facility itself. In a third case, he earned a trip to the dentist by removing a tooth, then brandished an improvised prop gun he'd created in Woodshop to make a successful break. A Florida parole commissioner who raised objections to Mark's release noted that while Mark had successfully escaped seven times, his record record showed numerous other attempts, a total of 13. But Middleton and another Mark advocate, filmmaker Gabriel London, says that Mark's actions were those of a panicked man who felt cornered. He also has had multiple gang rapes, and he has also had multiple beatings by multiple guards said Middleton, what do you do? This story is uh, definitely true crime to some degree. What do you think about somebody being convicted of theft of stealing tools that he's been left in a will? Well, I never thought, uh, so, so this all starts because of that, right? Um, Correct. And so, uh, this is something that could have been worked out outside of a criminal courtroom, in my opinion. Uh, It should have been worked out outside of a criminal courtroom because you have to keep in mind, um, so he gets sentenced for that, right? 
Right. And um, the length of his sentence, the reason it gets so long is because of the things he's doing while he's confined, right? No. It's because of what he does on the outside. What? So his sentence keeps getting extended because of what he does when he escapes. Well, it's the escape, though, right? I mean, the escapes themselves add a little bit. So his first... Okay, go ahead. Okay, so his first escape, he gets out of the Florida State Hospital in Chattahoochee. That's his, his first attempt. But he does end up being able to scale the facility's wall. Once he gets over the fence, he hot wires a car. And several days later, he's recaptured and sent to the Bay County Jail. What he gets in trouble with there is hot wiring the car. And this is the one where he put LSD in the staff's coffee. So that becomes another part of it. When he's, when he's stealing the car, he gets a grand theft for stealing the car. Okay. And one of the later escapes... Uh, he actually ends up stealing a gun. And according to the Florida Weekly, he then, once he steals the gun, he uses the gun to steal another car to get away, and he gets charged with armed robbery and uh, grand theft auto. So those charges keep adding up. Like, he is sentenced for the uh, escapes and the escape attempts. But it's these other charges that he keeps getting hit with that they cause him to to keep staying in jail for that first offense. Okay. And so um, I just want to make sure I'm clear. He never committed a violent crime, right? Not other. Well, I mean, armed robbery is technically a violent crime, but he no. I don't know the context of that. I don't know, like, what actually occurred. Do you? Because they, so you've got to keep this in mind. So, of course, like every single true crime story out there, this has a narrative, right? And the narrative begins with the fact that he goes to prison for four years because he took tools that his dad left him and they hadn't gone through probate. Okay, so that's how it starts, right? And so... You know, in that case, that should not have uh, been a criminal issue at all. I don't know how it got to the point where it was. And so having that under the belt of the narrative, you have to wonder, like, what each of these things is, right? Like, so how much of an attempted robbery was it? Or, oh, was he actually charged with armed robbery or just attempted? Oh, wait. Which one? Was he charged? Was he charged with armed robbery? Related to the very first thing, any of it. So what they get him for? He gets a felony grand theft, and then because he's in possession of a firearm, he gets possession of a firearm by a felon. So the felony grand theft was for more than three hundred, less than twenty thousand dollars. This is tool. He gets a four-year sentence for that in 1980. He already had a... So the other... The way this boils down is so weird. So he has a grand theft for the tools. He has a grand theft for taking his father's firearm. And then he's got possession of a firearm by a felon because of the grand theft. 
There, there's separate incidents, incidents, but it's not good. So he hasn't committed a violent crime, though. Well, I'm gonna, I'll run down the list for you. So those are all between 1978 and 1980. In 1981, he has the attempted escape, and then all out of order. Thank you, Florida, for not even putting this in order. So in 1980, he has an escape in July of 1980. He ends up with a burglary of a occupied structure. And this is the same time frame. And theft of a firearm. This is all July 1980. So he escapes on the 8th of July. And then over the next three days, um, he racks up a couple of additional charges. That's theft of a firearm, uh, burglary and an occupied structure. They put an assault on that. Uh, basically, he committed an assault, and I think it's pointing a gun. I can't tell you that for sure, but I do know that that's the 45-year sentence. The assault with a gun? The burglary with an assault of an occupied structure is how they – it's a terrible – way to put that charge but it, it's cons- it's classified as a nighttime burglary and he stole the firearm at the same time when he did that that's the sentence that is 45 years everything else is not um, I thought he got a life sentence because he pled it out I'm, I'm getting there okay. uh, it, it gets way weirder while he's out on the July 1980 escape he racks up possession of cocaine possession of paraphernalia and possession of marijuana charges. He also has an earlier charge come back up where they hit him for carrying a concealed firearm. He gets a 15 year sentence for that. Everything that I just named there where he's possessing cocaine, possessing marijuana, he gets five years on each charge, uh, including another grand theft firearm. Um, And then he gets 15 years for carrying a concealed firearm. In 1982, he has, uh, in 1981, he has an attempted escape. And then in 1982, he has three charges of bringing contraband into a prison. He gets five years on each count. He, uh, he ends up with this burglary armed with a weapon, meaning he was carrying a gun, from 1981, which is during another escape. And for that, he gets the pleasure of having a 49-year sentence added on. Um, it's very complicated to understand like how they're stacking his sentences. Uh, the gist of it is he, he takes a plea deal, and that plea deal is essentially life with parole so far away it may as well not be parole. His story... As, as like people tell it, it's not super interesting. He like makes a zip gun out of a toothpaste tube, like basically a modified weapon. Um, he's actually spent 27 years total in solitary confinement. Um, he right. says the, the bulk of the abuse that he has endured was at the Florida State Prison. Um, he was transferred there in 1982 there is a warden named Ron McAndrew who served as the warden from 1996 to 1998. And he described this particular prison uh, in Northern Florida as ungovernable. And he said the situations were essentially squads composed of correctional officers roaming the cell blocks, beating and degrading the prisoners with impunity 
and then turning a blind eye to violence between the inmates. That's um, the because, warden saying that? Yeah, Ron McAndrew well, said that. Why didn't he take control of that situation? He couldn't. He, he tried and failed. He didn't have control of his employees. Eventually, that situation is rectified by the powers that be in the Florida state government getting involved. You know, Mark is described as a, a loner. He doesn't align with any of the prison gangs that might protect him. And when, you know, he's basically, he's made himself vulnerable by doing that. Now, their prison solitary confine, confinement had an escape-proof cell in it. And it, this is the one where he was the only nonviolent inmate held there. Uh, they didn't ha- he didn't have any books. He didn't have any magazines. He didn't have any radio. He didn't have any TV. He didn't have any windows. He didn't have any sunlight. He didn't have any water. He didn't have e- even any toiletries. He has had over 300 disciplinary reports filed against him. Well, I just want to take the opportunity to point this out. Okay, so at 18 or 19, however old he was, um, when his father died and he got charged with stealing the tools that were left to him, uh, you know, he gets a four-year sentence on something I feel like could have been settled not in criminal court, okay? Yeah, it wasn't a criminal matter, ultimately. I don't feel like it was. Um, it was made a criminal matter. I don't know who made it a criminal matter. The stepmom basically was the one who instigated that. Well, she, I mean, she at least called the police, right? We don't Correct. know. like, But somebody got, instead of like trying to mediate this out, right? Yeah. It went like, I don't know if it went straight to, ha- it was a crime, right? I don't know what happened because it's just the narrative now. However, okay, so he hadn't really committed a crime at that point and he gets put in jail. Right. Okay. And that's where it all goes wrong because I realize that, you know, yes, he's escaped. Yes. He, when he escapes, he does things like steal vehicles and, you know, he's got all these other issues happening, but how do we really expect a 19 year old to respond when they've been put in jail for a non-crime. I I don't know how they're supposed to respond. I mean... This is pretty... I mean, this is... I feel like he's responded actually pretty well, right? Uh, he On top of losing his father, he goes to retrieve what's his, what... And you know those tools, like, had to have meant a lot to him, right? Yeah. Uh, because of the nature, the way that the whole story is set up, they work together, all that stuff. And... So, you know, I don't know that his uh, stepmother was had bad intentions or if she really just didn't want to deal with it or, you know, if she wanted him prosecuted, you know. Um, but it there was a, a certain amount of, like, uh, emotional damage being done here, right, to this yeah. kid. And it just got compounded, right? Yeah. And that's literally the story of this guy's life is just compounding damage to somebody that was already damaged. And he never should have gone to jail in the first place unless there's information about what happened that I don't understand. 
No, it's not. I, I've gone through like all the petitions. I've gone through all the motions. I've gone through all the court records I could get my hands on. The gist of it is this. He just happens to go into prison at a time where it's particularly violent. And that's where I was headed with this disciplinary report thing. Racking up all these reports, he's not committing violence. It's for possessing contraband. It's for making his own alcohol. It's for keeping a weapon that is defensive that he never really ends up using. The few weapons he's had in his hands as far as like firearms go, uh, he has pointed them at people, but he hasn't used them on people. Um, he's never really been accused of hurting people. He's engaging in what is rule breaking that's sort of in line with someone who has probably Asperger's is what my guess would be. I know they said autism spectrum, but I'm picturing like um, if he's, if he's described as a, a Samat, then Asperger's would certainly explain um, a lot of the social issues that he's got going on. So it, it's even basically alleged that a lot of those disciplinary reports are guards that don't like him designed to keep him in solitary or just keep him in jail. Now, if he was a problem child and stepmom had been around for the problem child period, even if he's a teenager, that's probably like if he's a, you know, that level of savant and he, he can appear erratic and he could appear dangerous. I put that in big air quotes, but you know what I'm saying? Like he could look crazy or whatever word you want to use. He could maybe look violent. He's probably not. He's just loud and probably obnoxious and probably off-putting. Off-putting. That's a good way. I feel like, um, I feel like a lot of people are off-put by him. Yes. And that, so he, you know, I know people like this, um, I there's a side of me that has a little bit of uh, off-puttingness to to it. Generally speaking, when you look at how this this all uh, goes down, he really has been kept in the prison system just to keep him in the prison system. Now, it seems ahead. like it's what yeah. it seems like, and you know, um, I think a lot of the behavior that he exhibited with those. Um, disciplinary reports which is it's basically just like where you get in trouble while you're an inmate right that's what that is and it's a write-up i think it's just like some pretty normal behavior coming from somebody who again was an 18 or 19 year old who was retrieving his tools after his father had died and left him the tools and he gets put in jail because at that point he probably is like, it does not matter what I do. Yeah. So here's, um, here's a petition. This is from his wife, Bonnie DeFries. He met her through a pen pal agency years ago. So uh, this is something she put up, you know, it's a change.org petition. I don't know the time or date of this petition. Uh, it looks like it's at least nine or 10 years ago. Well, you know that he got out, right? Yeah, yeah, that's part of the story that we're telling in order. (laughs) So this is what she says. Uh, I'm amazed that he's married, by the way. Honorable commissioners, with all my heart, I pray that you will see the wisdom in finally granting my nonviolent and aging inmate husband his freedom by paroling him from the Florida prison system. Thus far, the parole commission has 
repeatedly added additional years to his original parole date, punishing him for nonviolent misbehavior, such as disobeying orders and the possession of contraband. Today, his projected parole release date is 2085, at which time he would be 127 years old. So let's understand how we got here, why he has misbehaved, and worked together for a more just outcome. For over 35 and a half years in prison, Marcus suffered inconceivable torment from frequent beatings and repeated rapes to long-term solitary confinement. Looking back to where it all began, it was all preventable. From a very young age, Mark had an incredible mechanical gift, but struggled in relationships with people. He was not a bad kid. He was just a talented loner. At 19, after his beloved father died, Mark went to prison because of a dispute with his stepmother over tools his father had willed to him. Florida saw it as grand larceny, but to Mark, it was unjust. He made the mistake of acting on that feeling. Mark escaped seven times from four different institutions in less than two years, earning the name Houdini and the hatred of Florida officials. During this time, four out of five psychiatrists ruled Mark was incompetent to be sentenced to prison. Something was clearly wrong. But when one psychiatrist said Mark was faking mental illness, a judge then allowed him to plead guilty. Mark has been in prison ever since. Parole eligible, but never paroled because of behavior related to mental illness. The once wild and talented kid is now a talented and long-suffering man who endures frequent mental and physical abuse in a system that cannot tolerate a free-spirited, non-conformist man's belief that he does not belong in prison. Mark has never been given a jury trial, and 27 years of his 35 and a half years prison time has been, sent in has been spent in maximum security isolation. In effect, he's been given a life sentence for a youthful, nonviolent mistake and misbehavior related to mental problems. No one should see any justice in this. This is only unyielding punishment coming from a system that, that refuses to acknowledge a different approach. Mark, who is now 54 years old, finally has hope in a facility that offers some rehab. So he is working hard to turn his life around for himself and for me, his wife. He is rebuilding and improving his talents in technical and mechanical pursuits while still in prison. He's doing excellent work in a computer class, has done equally well as a porter, and is currently in a high-level maintenance job. He has resided in a God pod, which is an honor pod. He previously earned his GED, and upon his release from prison, will update that and enroll in a community college to earn his AAS degree in computer science. Mark has never been a threat to anyone on the outside. He has Asperger's syndrome traits, but is emotional and caring in his own way. He is an intelligent and highly skilled worker capable of making a living on the outside. With help and support from the system and all of us on the outside, he can and will become a productive, productive citizen once again. Commissioners, please hear our message. Mark has improved his behavior remarkably over the last four years. So please work with us to create a fair and humane pathway to freedom for Mark. There's simply no sensible reason to keep my husband incarcerated any longer. Many others agree, as confirmed by the signatures on this petition. Therefore, I ask your heartfelt consideration in this matter and sincerely thank you for your merciful decision in Mark's and my favor. This is Bonnie DeFriest. Uh, then there's an update. 
that Mark was granted a parole hearing. Um, and a couple of different weird updates. He was bitten by a black widow spider at one point. Uh, it made him very sick. Um, and there's lots of comments on here. All the comments are eight or nine years old, which sort of goes to what you were just um, mentioning. Uh, he was granted parole and released on the 5th of February of 2019. Ten days later, he was rearrested. Crazy, right? Well, so initially, uh, it was like this unprecedented thing when the, I'm not sure exactly what it's called, the Florida uh, Parole Commission or whatever. Yeah. Um, they reduced, it was unprecedented. They reduced his um, uh, potential release date from uh, 2085 to March 2015. Yes. But um, when March 2015 uh, came around, he had these, charges that were outstanding that they didn't consider. And so, you know, he ends up uh, finally being released, like you said, in February of 2019. So he had to serve almost four more years. Um, now, so, you know, this makes everybody wonder, right? Um, well, he was immediately rearrested, right? Pretty much. And he was rearrested based on uh, his parole being revoked because um, the facility where he was uh, revoked his residence. And one of the conditions of his parole was that he be in a facility, right? Yes. Okay. And so... He tested again, positive for drugs. And then he had unspecified behavioral violations. Those two things end up um, getting him transferred back to, to the Florida prison system. Okay. You're right. Yeah. Um, and so he didn't, it's my understanding, like he didn't even really get a chance to try. He went a little bit wild, maybe. I don't know. Um, it seemed like, uh, but uh, so, okay. It makes you wonder all this effort that was put into getting him out Right. And then he gets basically put right back in. And it was a series of things that happened. Uh, to my knowledge, he's in to this day, right? Yeah, um, he's he's still in. So we got to go. Go ahead. Um, so my what I wonder is, you know, I stand firmly beside of the fact that uh, he should not have gone to jail for four years at the age of 18 or 19 uh, for the dispute he was having with his stepmother, which I don't even know that it was a dispute, but he wanted tools that his, his deceased father had left him that had not gone properly through probate. Right. Right. Okay. I maintain he should not have gone to jail to begin with. Uh, what would his life have been like if that didn't happen? I have no idea. He may have ended up in jail anyway. However, um, I do feel like, uh, the outcome here is never going to be the standard sufficiency of what you expect from a criminal when they get released. Okay. Cause that's not what happened here, right? This isn't a, 
an offender who did something to actually be punished for to begin with, right? And so at the end of it all, all those things that, you know, were crimes that he committed were just, they were in response to having been locked up for no reason to begin with, right? Yeah. Now, how does that pan out? Well, I honestly, I feel like there's no hope for this guy because of everything that's transpired. I mean, obviously the parole board's not going to give him parole again. It doesn't matter all the little tiny things that happened in the meantime uh, that would probably make it make more sense that somebody who tried so hard to get out uh, for so long would immediately mess it up, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know that... I don't know that it's ever going to be accurately reflected what really happened there, right? Because it well, just sounds really bad. Well, so one of the things that happens to DeFries along the way, and this is like pretty par for the course, is in 1999, uh, and this is this is one of the things he got you know sort of rearrested for as he was paroled. He ends up in the California prison system. So how do you get? to the California prison system from the Florida prison system. And in, in this case, what happened was Mark uh, was present for a crazy thing back in uh, July of 1999. He actually witnessed a death row inmate named Frankie Valdez being murdered by correctional officers. Uh, so Valdez was serving a death sentence for the 1987 uh, shooting of a correctional guard named Fred Griffiths. So Valdez was actually on the outside and was attempting to assist an inmate escape. And uh, another inmate named William Von Pock, he was actually sentenced to death for his role in Griffiths's murder and he was executed on June 12th of 2013, so 14 years after this. The incident here that we're, we're talking about is, is literally like across the hall from um, where, for no good reason, Mark DeFries just happens to be standing. Now, this is the morning of July 17th, 1999, in the X-Wing area of the Florida State Prison. Inmates stated that the correctional uh, officers, they go into Frankie Valdez's cell. Nine of them go into the cell carrying stun guns. Uh, and they beat him to death. And the inmates, after the fact, stated that the correctional officers placed his body in a hallway. They bleached and washed his entire cell. And then they placed his body in another cell. And long after the fact, they called 911. The autopsy of Frankie Valdez showed boot prints in his skin. Uh, he had broken ribs. He was pronounced dead at the Shands Hospital in Stark, Florida, which is in Bradford County. Um, and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement opened an investigation. Now, what the story is from the prison is, is that Valdez committed suicide by diving off of his bunk and then hit the bars of his cell. But the FTLE did not, uh, they did not believe that because of the boot prints. They ruled that he died due to a beating 
and the nine officers who were suspended from their jobs refused to talk. So the FBI gets involved in the FDLE investigation. And on February 3rd, 2000, uh, Captain Timothy Alvin Thornton, Sergeant Charles Austin Brown, and Sergeant Jason Patrick, or J.P. Griffiths, same last name as Fred, uh, the gentleman who was killed, and Sergeant Robert William Sauls were indicted uh, by an Alchua County grand jury. The charges were second-degree murder, official corruption, battery on an inmate, and aggravated battery. There were five other guards who had charges. There was one defendant who was acquitted in 2000. Uh, in 2002, Thornton, Griffiths, and Brown are all acquitted. And the jury giving the verdict on that was five men and one woman down in Florida. Uh, and then Bill uh, Cervoni, who was the Florida state's attorney at the time, he dropped all the remaining charges in 2002. He argued the trial was problematic since it was in Bradford County, Florida, where other prisons were located, and he cited the previous acquittals. Um, now, Jason Griffiths had no relation to Fred Griffiths. He just had the same, uh, same name, and he accused the trial of being politically motivated. So these guys basically get away with beating an inmate to death on death row. And Mark DeFries witnesses it. So the only thing they can think of is to move him out of Florida prison system over to California where he gets in more trouble. Well, at least they didn't kill him. Yeah, this is true. At least they didn't kill him. There's an article by a guy named Bill Cornwell, um, and he is a uh, he's writing for the Florida Weekly as the Florida Weekly's correspondent uh, correspondent for uh, Palm Beach Florida Weekly, and you can find them at palmbeach.floridaweekly.com. He wrote up a, a July 9, two thousand fifteen, uh, pretty long form article uh, about Mark, and it opens and it says. If Kafka, Shakespeare, and John Grisham could breach time and space to forge an unlikely collaboration, they would be hard-pressed to fashion a character more representative of their literary archetypes than Mark DeFries, the mad mercurial master of mischief and misdirection, who was known as Florida's prison Houdini. Kafka would have understood the psychological torment of Mr. DeFries, who was initially cast into the mall of the legal system in 1979 at the age of 19 for stealing a set of tools that had been legally bequeathed to him by his late father. Shakespeare surely could have defined the tragedy of the man who possesses prodigious mechanical talents, which could have been put to productive use, but whose disordered mind compels him into a seemingly never ending loop of self-defeating acts that have propelled him deeper into the abyss. And Mr. Grisham, of course, invariably loves a character who is abused by a callous and uncaring legal system, Mr. DeFries personified, only to be rescued by idealistic, indefatigable heroes, who in this instance are Gabriel London, an intrepid New York-based maker of documentary films, and dogged attorney John Middleton of Melrose, Florida. And they're just, they. it goes on to say basically everything else that, we just said, I just thought that was an interesting description of him because you literally can't make this shit up. They send him to California because he witnesses guards killing an inmate. He gets infractions in California 
and then has to, when he finally gets paroled the first time, he has to go do jail time in California if he's going to get out. That's crazy. Well, especially since the officers or whatever they were that killed the guy completely got away with murder. Yeah. Like, what is first-degree murder under, like, apparently in Florida, it's only illegal if it's written in a will. So if you were left tools in a will, you're stealing them. But as long as they're, you know, as long as the murder is not witnessed by anyone other than those inmates, it is not first-degree murder. But I'm telling you, man, nine guys stomping into a cell are not there to, like, hand out cupcakes. It It makes me so mad. Well, okay, and so that's sort of my point with all of this is I I can't imagine that he cares about much of anything anymore. Um, uh, And, you know, his wife died. Yeah. She died, I believe, maybe August of 2020. Um, And uh, this guy was done wrong, Uh, And it began very early on. And I'm not saying, I I don't know what his life would have been like um, had he not been uh, put in prison for not a crime, right? I mean, he was put in prison for something that was not a crime that should have been handled in a civil way, even in civil court. I mean, it's a whole thing, right? But once he was in the system, he couldn't get a leg up. I mean, he no. just couldn't. And it it does sound to me like um, there was animosity towards him. He was not, um, he wasn't somebody that was inherently liked, nor did he care to be liked, right? And, um, you know, when you're in a situation where you've got nine guys that just killed your fellow inmate, right? <laughs> It, that's a that's a very um, uncertain situation, right? Um, scary situation. And it would drive some of his behavior. Now, I, ha- I read something. Like, there were several parole hearings, like, leading up to where they actually ended up uh, granting him parole. And uh, one of the things that I find uh, unnecessarily cruel is uh, once you've got somebody's uh, release date out to what 2085 I believe is what it was yeah um, and he would be like you know however he'd be like 120 years old which is not gonna happen right so once you get out to that point like why on earth would you continue adding time to it right um, except they do. Right. And I feel yeah. like that's like a waste of resources right there, having to have somebody consider it. Um, but in his particular situation, so he, he was off track, not caring about anything. And he had like in, in between a period of time and another period of time, he had 25 uh, discipline reports. Right. Yeah. And then after he sort of got everything on track and, and they were making I guess the documentary, I don't know if somebody's wrote a book about it, maybe, but uh, he had an attorney and some other advocates working with him, right? Yeah. And he goes uh, back a couple years later or whatever the timing is, and he had two. 
So he went from 25 to 2, right? And you've got this guy on the parole commission board that's saying, like, if he really wanted to, he would have none, right? Yeah. And I'm going, wait a second. This guy went from 25 to 2, and they weren't, like, what he was getting in trouble for wasn't hurting anybody, right? I don't know what it was, but I just remember thinking to myself, like, the, the whole system has it in for this guy, right? A little and, bit, yeah. And so that guy wanted to add more time onto his already ridiculous sentence. And ultimately, when he gets the, when he finally gets the uh, granted, the parole that's going to be in March of 2015. It's two women on the commission that decide, and there's a man that I guess it's a panel of three. And so there's a man who says like, no, but the two went out, right. Cause it's a majority thing. It doesn't have to be unanimous. And so um, he, and then it gets, it blew up in their face, except, and, and I, I just, I really, I feel like this could like backfire in my face, but like I don't see what they expected to happen with this guy getting out like he did, right? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there was probably a whole lot of miscommunication that occurred between him getting out of prison and then him getting not welcome to the facility any longer, whatever occurred there, right? I don't know. They don't say what the behavior uh, violations were, right? But you've got a guy that just spent, you know, again, 27 years in solitary confinement and, you know, 42, I don't know, 40 years in prison. Um, and who he didn't commit the crime he initially went to prison for, right? So how does a person like that act when they have this outspoken... Uh, non-people-pleasing personality, right? I, I just, yeah, he's just a difficult person is what I would call him. Right, but there's no crime in that. And so, you know, if you don't know how to mind your P's and Q's and you're in a precarious situation to begin with, like nobody gives you a hand, right? Right. And so in this situation, uh, he probably won't get another opportunity, but the system broke him. Okay. And now and they don't want to take responsibility for them. Every single person and, and from oh, the hill that they are on and the way that it comes out of their mouths, if they could just hear it with my ears, right, they would realize how absolutely ridiculous they sound because... Uh, nobody is going to convince me. I mean, there could be other circumstances that convince me, but under the circumstances that have been laid out in this narrative, he never should have gone to prison to begin with for that crime. And I'm never, it, it, we have no idea what else would have happened, right? If that didn't occur. And so they broke him, they won't fix him. And everybody uh, is blinded by, his bad behavior in the in-between. Yeah. And unfortunately, after there was this huge fight to get him out, it just continued that way. Now, did he did he deserve to go back to prison? Well, 
I have no idea, right? I don't know what his behavior violations were. Um, I do realize that you have to, like, not only do you have to, like, be a person that is behaving themselves when you get out of prison, you actually have to go above and beyond that, right? You've got to be, like, really on top of your behavior if you're going to stay out of prison, right? Yeah. And when you have emotional defects and uh, possible personality uh, issues and then syndromes like Asperger's or autism or whatever, because none of this has been diagnosed, right? I mean, he's never gotten any sort of care in prison. Correct. And so when you have all that going against you, well, sure, you're going to have, you know, your behavior violations. And I don't know how he got the drugs. I mean, somebody's got to take responsibility for this guy and his parents I'm sure are long dead. Right. Um, his dad died setting all this off. And, right. You know, yeah. And so without somebody taking like responsibility for him that can actually take responsibility for him um, and, you know, not let him get a hold of drugs. Uh, I don't know what else there is, but I don't feel like he should be punished repeatedly uh, for the system bringing him. No, I agree with you. And at least one other person agrees with you. Two websites in here. One is um, actually foundobjectsite.com. And that's a filmmaker uh, that we talked about sort of throughout this story here who has put, you know, the story together. And he has, you know, some different ways that you can uh, to learn a little bit more about Mark DeFries. And then the other is a, a website that, you can find on that website, like pointing you over there, it's defreest.com, which is D-E-F-R-I-E-S-T.com. And there's a couple of different choices here to uh, read about some news and reviews. Uh, they do talk about like the efforts in 2022 to get him paroled. So uh, if you have an interest in that, I definitely think that this guy uh, could use a letter of support. They've got a couple of different um, email addresses in here. Uh, if you are the type of person that, and, and I am the type of person that thinks, you know, why is this happening? Uh, you can email some of these people and ask them what is going on. Uh, you can also check out uh, The Mind of uh, Mark DeFriest, uh, which uh, I think it's still playing on Showtime. I would have to check, but it, you can find more information on those two sites. Uh, this is a crazy story. I do. I hope that things like this never happened to other people. Um, it's just bonkers to me that, that it would happen at all. So sad. I assume you don't have anything else here. No, that's why I'm quiet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I was just I leaving. I feel it. like we both just try to get the last word, you know? <laughs> oh, I no, I, I was just trying to wrap it up because this story makes me angry. Oh, it's so bad. And, like, this guy... He really, he should have never been in jail to begin with. Um, you know, he might have done something later in life that would have gotten him in jail anyway. He He's one of the kids in class that, like, he yep. needed, um, like, you know, ADHD meds, right? Yep. He needed, he literally needed Adderall. That's and, exactly what I thought, like, looking at his whole story. Um, and the fact that, like, he, I think he tests positive for meth, right? Yeah, that so the way that it works with all of that, and uh, he he gets transferred, which we didn't really talk about this part. It's pretty interesting. This is all 
uh, Bonnie's efforts. So he gets a parole hearing in November of 2014. And that's when they reduced, like you said, the two, the 2085 parole date to March of 2015. And this would have been, that would have been possible, but he had additional outstanding sentencing for essentially all the other nonsense that hadn't been considered. So he doesn't get parole till February 5th, 2019. He has to spend 12 months in a mental health facility that also offers substance abuse treatment. They approve community outreach in Corvallis, Oregon, because it's close to Bonnie's house. So he gets in the facility February 7th, 2019. And on February 13th, they revoke his residence because of the unspecified behavioral violations, um, which raises the question of whether they were appropriately informed, prepared, or capable of providing him with treatment and structure. Because the idea had been to successfully transition him out into public life. But what didn't help was that he tested positive for methamphetamine at the facility. Do you think that he had taken some ADHD medicine? Huh. I didn't even think of that. I That's so, the very first thing I thought of. Because, like, so if you have ADHD and you take Adderall, which is essentially a prescription form it's a methamphetamine of salt yeah. amphetamine it has the opposite effect on you it does not make you like you know it's not like your own speed right um mm -hmm. it actually slows you down and it makes you sort of normal and that's exactly what i thought when i saw that i was like i bet he took adderall or something to my knowledge he still hasn't been to see a doctor um his wife because his wife has passed away uh, it's highly unlikely he's going to come across uh, somebody on the outside that would sort of orchestrate that because he almost needs like parents again, right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, not only was his his existence sort of, you know, cut short at 19, he reverted because of just all the bad things that were occurring. Yeah. He, this guy fell through the cracks. Uh, there are cracks that are being ignored, I think, by um, some of the people that, I mean, it's so mundane to go through uh, the parole uh, process as far as being like on the board of commissioners or whatever it is. You would get tired of looking at, you know, file after file after file. And I understand that. However, Anytime you're in a situation like that, you should always be on the lookout for any outliers, right? And if you're in that position, you should be able to spot an outlier for what it is, which in this case would be a situation where you've got a guy who I'm going to stand by the fact that I don't think he's violent, okay? I don't think he's committed a violent crime. And... He's, you know, at different times got, you know, all these disciplinary reports coming in, right? And then you've got a guy who started out in jail at 19 and, you know, it's progressed to 40 years in prison, right? It's so crazy, though. Well, it's an outlier, though. And, and that those types of cases have to be looked at differently if you're going to treat prisoners as humans, right? If you're just going to, you know, stamp, you know, no on everything, that's fine too. I mean, if that's their prerogative, but this never should have occurred. And he just, 
everything failed this guy. And, you know, I, I can't say for sure how his life should have, uh, would have gone. Right. I don't know, but I do know he shouldn't have gone to jail after his father's death for, uh, taking the tools that were his, that was wrong. And that's what started this whole path. I know it's from a long time ago, but I can't help but wonder what kind of prison hospital infirmary pharmacy has LSD 25 that he could even use to dose the guards in the first place. This, this, this whole thing like has so much sunshine that like nobody's paying any attention to. Well, now I want to know if it's methamphetamine that they ended up like, or if it's, you know, related to ADHD, that would be weird. They did say that like, they specifically said that he had displayed bipolar mania, whatever that like, I, I mean, it could be, he's just bipolar, and he's just really smart. Okay, but so he gets out of jail. He has to go to this facility. Before he even, like, gets in the facility, my understanding is he had been his, you know, he had done stuff that made them revoke his uh, residency. There's questionable, uh, it's what, like, it left everybody wondering, like, if everybody knew what they were getting themselves into here, right? They definitely did not send him to the right place, but they felt like because they had done it as, it's his fault because it was close to Bonnie, basically. Which I don't I, even know I, how you rationalize that. Well, I, I don't think, uh, I I feel like he was, it was so short, right? Um, and you, if you, there's no distinction, there's no chemical distinction between like Adderall and meth. Like, yeah, you, yeah, you bringing that up like makes me have all sorts of questions. There is no like it would just show up, right? Um, yeah. And I don't know what was happening there. Um, there's not a lot of additional information, and a lot of people gave up on this whole cause, right? Um, I I still think that society has a bit of a responsibility to repair or to at least attempt to repair the damage that was done here. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know that there is any uh, structure in place at this point that could actually help this guy. Cause he's 60 years old now, right? 62. Is he 62? Uh, something around there. I don't know. his exact. I saw where, let's see. Mm -hmm. Late, so he's born 1960. Yeah. So he's 62. Yeah, he's going to be 62 years old. You know, she was 80 something. No, she was 90 when she died. Was she 90? Okay. I saw where she was uh, 30 years older than him. Well, right, because um, he needed a parent. He needed a parent, yeah. Yeah, and, so wild. you know, she um, she did the best she could. I have a feeling she really wore herself out. Um, you know, she, you can... Some people need a cause, though. They do. Um, I agree, but I don't know. I just, I don't know what the solution to this is, but... Uh, I do feel like everybody dismissing it is wrong. Um, and everybody saying, well, he did get out and then like, he didn't even get a chance. And I don't know. I do think that he was probably on. Um, I think he was probably trying to normalize his thought process or something. Um, and you know, for him to have to go to an addiction facility, like straight out of prison, how does that even work? How are you addicted to anything in prison? <sighs> well, 
I hope he gets out at some point. I hope somebody figures out what to do with him because it's certainly not keeping him there. I, I'm un- unfortunately, I feel like he'll be there till he dies. I I saw where either his projected release or his possible parole date, like whatever they use down there, has been updated to 2038. That's the the next time they'll consider. Uh, I just I don't see the system being able to rectify itself in this situation, and it's the sat. It will. It's one of the saddest cases um, that I've ever seen because his entire life was wasted for no reason. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time.
a Grinch You got termites in your smile You have all the tender sweetness of a the choice between the two of you, I would take the Socks and your soul is full of gunk, Mr. Grinch. The three best words I would use to describe you are as follows, and I quote Stag! Stag! Grinch, you really are 